the sting of death, to mourn, to lament. God, would you be kind to them that they won't be consumed by the sadness? God, we step into our noble responsibility to lift up our officials. We prayed for it earlier during our time of prayer, and we pray for it now. Collectively, those who are here, those who are joined online, God, we step into this space of nobility and we lift up our newly elected officials here in our city. God, would you give them wisdom? Would they lead from a place of humility and integrity? Would they identify vulnerability as a strength, not a weakness? Would they care for the vulnerable among us through policy and perspectives? If they know you, if they claim you, God, would you give them the the resolve to live out their faith in the public square in that way? For those who don't know you, God, would this be an opportunity for them to encounter the God who rules over all authority and gives it fully? Then we would see a picture of you and the men would be guided in the way of life. We pray that not just for those in our city, but we pray that for those all across our nation. God, if if we were celebratory on Tuesday, would you remind us that we have a greater kingdom in heaven? If we were consumed with grief on Tuesday, would you remind us that we have a greater kingdom in heaven? No matter where we land, we land in your arms of love and truth and grace and be transformed forevermore. God, as we move from the praises of your name to the preaching of your word, give us power. Power to proclaim. Power to receive. Power to respond. Power to see. Power to savor. Show yourself strong, King of heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, Spirit, we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, meet me in Luke 2. A lot to cover, a little time to do it. And so I want to make sure that we maximize our time. Um, We're actually at a turning point in the series. Um, This is the final documented instance in the early life of Jesus. Um, It's a turning point that commemorates, but it does It does more than that. I love this portion of the text uh, because it reminds me of the beauty of humanity and just the gift that God gives people that as they're reading the word, that they could use their holy imagination to figure stuff out. Like every time I get to this portion of the text, I start thinking about um, my parental reality in raising kids, uh, kids who are the age of Jesus in this um, portion. By the way, that was hard watching my daughter pray and read the Bible. I was like, I'm not going to be able to preach. I'm just going to cry my way through it uh, just because I'm super um, proud of her. She's awesome. Nevertheless, when I look at this portion of the text with Jesus, I'm like, yeah, like, I wonder what it would have been like to be like Mary or Joseph, you know, in this moment. 
Particularly if you like remember what she just read and we're going to look at it where Jesus just kind of like leaves them. Yeah, they leave and he's like, I'm just going to go do my own thing. And it would have been like, Jesus, you want pow pow? Is it time for that? Like, where were you type? You know what I'm saying? Like, did they teach him more? More, please. If you're a parent, you know that reality when you're trying to get your kid to ask and use their words. More, please, Jesus. I just think about that when I'm here. And it's like, man, God is really good uh, to give us stuff like imagination and he's really kind uh, to, to make statements, declarations regarding our humanity, declarations that, that just boom for the life of Jesus and what this text exhibits, which is the incarnation that the king of heaven, he exited a chorus of angels and he took on humanity and all of its beauty and brokenness. It is, it is just rich here. Um, but... The final documented instance in the early life of Jesus is not merely a turning point that commemorates a significant transition in his life. It does. It is a turning point that communicates and reinforces some magnificent, magnificent dynamics regarding Jesus that Luke means for us to see. And it sets the ground for a key theme regarding Jesus that Luke means for us to take hold of. I want us to be enriched by it. What Luke is reinforcing, the theme he's setting up, that's going to show up in the next chapter. It's going to show up all throughout his writings, Luke, as well as Acts. And so the flow of our time is we're going to explore these ideas that are being reinforced. Not all of them, just a few. And then we're going to explore this key theme that I believe he's laying the ground for, I believe it convictionally. And we're just going to close with the grid I introduced last week because nobody sent me an email with a better name. And so this is your opportunity. Send me an email with a better name for the grid, which is perspectives and practices and a picture from the other side. And then we'll be done. I, I am not preaching to myself today. I am preaching to myself. Usually when I get up here, I'm preaching to myself because the text does work in me. But I'm going to need some feedback and response. It feels a little and so in Jesus name. Let me just say that out loud for my own self. It's not the absence of drums. You don't need drums to worship Jesus. Man of Sorrows, that song. Oof. All right, let's read it and then take it bit by bit. Starts off in verse 39, reads like this. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, just as an aside these like statements that establish setting, there's so much richness behind them. We see the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph, that they're actually like obeying God in the simple things and not just in the major like extravagant things. They're just faithful. Furthermore, Galilee and Nazareth, we see a cultural setting there that is going to show up later in the life of Jesus. Don't just skip over these things. Like I got to get to the important parts. This is the important part. That makes sense. Keep going. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You could underline that. You could star it. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, faithfulness again. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Jesus, do you want pow pow? Because that's what I would have said. We would have had a whole type of conversation at that moment. That's not what she said, though. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. <laughs> Understatement. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand that the, that the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. The humanity is seen from a parental standpoint just does it for me. Um, we've been to Disney two times in our life. Um, God bless Disney, House of Mouse. Um, and both times we lost children. Let me explain. Now, it's not because we're terrible parents. It's because Disney is overpopulated and young kids don't care about you. Okay? If you're a parent, you know that to be true. Um, and we didn't lose the same child. We lost two children. So one time and then we lost. It was a whole experience. If we ever go to Disney again, we're putting a third one on a leash. Yeah. No matter how old they are. It's like, why am I on a leash? Because I'm traumatized. Let's ride Slinky Dog Dash together. Stop talking, right? But I feel the angst of this text. That's why I said understatement, great distress. It's there. It's the, the richness of the human experience that we're gifted with, that we, we eat, we drink, we smile, we mourn. We even dare to dream we're human. Corruption invades our humanity but I honor the God who's made us a little lower than angels. But our experience, our story, our position in creation is infinitely greater than theirs. And this passage just oozes humanity, whether it's the humanity of Mary and Joseph as parents who are having to <laughs> figure out what happened to their sweet boy or it's the humanity of Jesus. We're meant to see it here. The final incident in the early life of Jesus given to us by the scriptures is bookended by the summary statement, Jesus growing in wisdom and favor with both God and man. It is an obvious turning point expressed in the age that is being highlighted. Jesus is going from childhood to manhood. Can I just lament for a second? We like a clear transition for that in our culture writ large, particularly among boys. There's not a clear mile marker that moves them from boyhood to manhood. In fact, most of the transitions from infancy, childhood to adolescence, they're sexual in nature and it's weird. You can start having babies now. You're a woman. What? That's awkward, guys. 
and it's sad. Because we need stuff like that. As I was just writing notes on this portion, this portion really does afford an opportunity to try and put a nail in the coffin of extended adolescence, where we just continue as youths to old age, never really growing up, particularly boys. And we put a, a nail in a coffin by establishing mile markers and clear transition markers. This is 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Let me suggest a few practices, particularly for young boys. I'm, I'm staring at my son who's going to be, you know, 13 in a few years, and I'm thinking about this heavy. Have them start leading family prayer, which assumes that you actually have it. No shade. We're all products of grace and growing, myself included. Commemorate this moment with, like, public and intimate celebrations make the 13th birthday of your son in fuego. Would it be fire and memorable? Would you pull him aside before it comes up and cast vision for his life and for manhood? Son, manhood that is rooted in Jesus, in his ways, in his words. It's not forceful or aggressive. It's not domineering, it's tender, it's fierce, it's sacrificial, it's meek, it's strong, and it's life-giving. Its pillars are rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, leading courageously, and investing eternally, son, would that be the picture of manhood that you grab and you mold yourself by the grace of God Almighty into the type of man that lays down his life that others would flourish? Would those mark you, son? And for the next three months, son, as we approach this 13th birthday, we're just going to grab one of these pillars and focus on it. That's for us fathers of young boys and mothers of young boys, particularly. Nevertheless, this is a turning point. It isn't just commemorating something, Jesus going from boyhood to manhood, which is powerful in and of itself, but it's communicating something. He is, he is communicating a maturation that has taken place in the life of Jesus. But here's what it's not. It is not Jesus growing into his deity as if there's something deficient in him. That's not what Luke means for us to see. That's heresy. It's not like, oh, there's this moment where he wasn't God, and now he, there's something lacking in him that he has to become more God or more human. That is not what is happening here. It's not how the scriptures talk about Jesus. It's not how Jesus talks about himself. This is Luke including this, not to show a deficiency in Jesus that would eventually be needed to be overcome, 
This is Luke including this to reinforce some significant ideas. A few of them are certain. Again, I think there's a theme coming, but let me just give this to us and let's just get after it. The first idea that he is reinforcing is the prophetic nature and future ministry of Jesus Christ. This is verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Let me just say something that is super enriching for me. This is a picture of who Jesus is going to be consistently in the temple, consistently teaching. It's a future ministry that he's in possession of now. There's more ideas that are going to be reinforced. But what I want to just lay out, and maybe this is kind of where I'm at in my season of life and ministry pastorally, knowing that there's people watching us online across the world, Asking questions of how you start churches in urban contexts. How do you lead churches? How do you grow in this pastoral thing? And I'm just tired of watching people who have it misconstrued. A terrible picture of what it means to lead. A terrible picture of what it means to be mature. A terrible picture of what it means to be a teacher. The best teachers are not those who have a storehouse of information that they could reach from to communicate ideas. Those aren't the best teachers. The best teachers are those who have a storehouse of humility and integrity and resolve. And it is often evidenced not in the answers that they give, but the questions that they ask. Asking the right questions, questions that matter, listening to others, reflecting their humility. And so this teaching ministry of Jesus that is being evidenced here is super powerful. But don't look at it and say, well, I just need to accumulate knowledge. Look at all of it. Look at this young boy who knew it all. Again, he's not growing into his deity Yet he is wrestling well, asking questions, giving people the opportunity to engage and to process. That's leadership. Not being domineering. Luke is reinforcing the prophetic nature and future ministry of of Jesus. The the future ministry of Jesus is is teaching, but but it is also that of a prophet to herald the truth of who God is and and, and call people to alignment and allegiance to to communicate the future that God is bringing about because he is is kind. And there's this idea that we mentioned at the start of the series that shows up here richly. It is the idea of implicit correspondence where Luke is pulling in the Old Testament, not by explicitly stating chapter and verse, but by bringing out imagery that will draw our minds, will draw the, the minds of the listeners to the Old Testament. And this bookend, growing in favor with God and man, it means for us to see the life of Samuel. Really, Samuel shows up all in the beginning of this passage, in this Luke journey, but here all the more, 1 Samuel 2. And we should recall Samuel. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. 
1 Samuel 2.26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And as he's drawing in the Samuel narrative, what we're meant to say is, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, just like with Samuel, if you, if you understand Samuel's story, it's really powerful. But there's a portion where the, the people of God were actually in chaos. And it says the richness of God's word was rare in those days. So there wasn't necessarily this fullness of revelation regarding who God is and what God wants for his people and what he wants to accomplish through them. And what Samuel commemorates is the closing of a chapter in the life of the people of God and the inaugurating of a chapter in the life of the people of God. He is closing one part of the story and he is beginning another That's why he serves as the last judge, but also in many ways, the first prophet. And he is going to eventually anoint the king of the Jews. Now, God was like, don't ask for it, but okay. He's closing a chapter and beginning one. And Jesus is doing the same. Jesus is closing a chapter regarding the people of God and how they related to God based on the old covenant, the old way of doing things. And he is beginning a new chapter. He is inaugurating something. And we're meant to see that, that Jesus has a prophetic ministry. It's crazy. It's actually pretty dynamic. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king holding all of these holy offices that were established of old. Now, he wasn't the only one to step into those spaces. There's some people who stepped into those spaces, and they should never have. Saul being one of them, who's also in the Samuel narrative. Fresh Prince, top six shows of all time. Up there with Simpsons, Family Matters, 24, Breaking Bad, and The Wire. Fight me. <laughs> we have that conversation. There's another one that is, may squeeze out The Simpsons, but The Simpsons is in there because it's a long, it's just. But there's that episode, Courting Disaster. I know it by name. And it's the episode where Carlton and Will, they're on the basketball team, right? And, and Carlton steals the basketball from Will. You remember that? Who's seen that episode? Who, who knows what I'm talking about, right? Who hasn't? God bless you. Your assignment today, get HBO Max and watch it. It's like episode 12, season one, great season. So, so him and Will are fighting over this basketball. He grabs it, right, pushes Will down. It's like 10 seconds left on the clock. He heaves it and he misses. Terrible. Everybody's mad. But at the end of the like, episode, like Uncle Phil comes in. God rest his soul, man. He comes in. And he starts having a conversation with Will, and he have a conversation with Carlton. He says, Will, you were showboating, blah, 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 blah. Will walks off. Then he has this conversation with Carlton. What was going through your head at this time? And he's like, man, I just saw the way that you were affirming Will, and you rushed to court. Man, I thought that you would do it to me. Bad motivation. Bad motivation. I'm going to force you into some type of activity. That's not real love. Nevertheless, he stole a role that was not meant for him. That's the, I just really wanted to tell that illustration. And we have all of these people who stole roles that were not meant for them. They were meant for Jesus. Saul exhibited that. He's a king. He wasn't really, it wasn't really meant for him. It was meant for Jesus. 
Jesus comes in and he is worthy. Every single office that existed before his arrival was a shadow of what would be produced in its full when Jesus came on the scene. And so he's aiming for us to see that Jesus is a prophet heralding the good news of the kingdom of God. He is reinforcing that with this passage. Some other stuff that he's reinforcing. Verse 49, he says this. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This isn't spicy Jesus, okay? Spicy Jesus is everywhere throughout the Gospels. Brood of vipers. Your father is Satan. That's spicy Jesus, okay? Talking real sideways to folk. This isn't hit right here. He's not like, yo, mom, listen, I'm, I'm the son of God. That's not, that's not what he's doing there. He's way too humble and respectful for that. He never sinned, which means that he honored his father and his mother. Look at him, my kids, in Jesus' name. You know, you just use the text. <laughs> I must be in my father's house. It'd be easy to focus on the teaching dynamic, which is what astonished people. But what astonishes me is that I must be in the father's house, not just communicating his capacity to teach, but we think about what the father's house signifies. This is Isaiah 56, 7. Again, this is Luke using implicit correspondence, just drawing in the Old Testament story. Isaiah 56. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them a joyful, joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house. This is God talking. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Luke draws it in implicitly here, but then he is going to state it explicitly in Luke 19 via Jesus saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. When we get there, I'm ready to preach that portion because it's misunderstood. For time's sake, I won't do it here. But but what 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 we're meant to see is the identifying of the temple, the the house of God as one of prayer and presence. What he's reinforcing is that the presence of God in the life of Jesus is something Jesus is going to be ambitious about pursuing and preserving no matter the cost. Luke 5, 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He withdrew to be with God. The frequency of Jesus's departure from noise and crowds for silence and solitude confronts me. Confronts me with a question. How often would God wish to meet me in silence and solitude, but I would drown him out with busyness and noise to be distracted from the divine. And I could attribute it to my ADHD, but I know it's more than that. My distractions are indicative of the absence of my devotion the unwillingness to sacrifice for time. Much of Christianity is not complicated at all. 
It's just costly. Words you don't ever want to hear, like hear come out of your wife's mouth. I feel like I have to fight for your attention. It's not that you don't care, but I can tell when you've moved on from the conversation or the moment. Your mind is somewhere else, but your body is right here. But more than your body being right here, I am too. So you didn't just leave the conversation, you left me, end quote. May God have mercy on my friendships and my marriages, my marriage, (laughs) and the people who put up with me and my speed racer mind and the subtle ways it shows itself to be distracted. But what is my tension is not mine's alone. It is all of ours to be distracted. There's a quote from... um, a guy by the name of John Mark Comer, he's, he's, a, he's been learning from him from a distance. He wrote this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. It's a long quote, give me time. It goes like this, because what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portrait of the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you give your attention to. That bodes well for those who are apprentices of Jesus, who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in this world. But not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety an emotionally charged drama of, or nonstop feed of celebrity gossip and titillation and cultural drivel. As if we give, in the first place, much of it is stolen by a clever algorithm to monetize our precious attention. But again, we become what we give our attention to for better or worse. He is right. Dang is also right. What's being reinforced is the ruthlessness of Jesus to be with the Father. He says, you're looking for me. If you knew me, you would know where I would be. I'd be with God, with my Father, in his presence in prayer. And he reflects that for the rest of his life. He's reinforcing a few more things. Let me give us one to go to the theme. He's reinforcing Jesus' awareness of his identity and his mission. Again, this is like, I, I'm in my father's house. Jesus talks like this consistently. Luke 4, 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I must, divine, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. John 9 John's take on the life of Jesus, he says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He is clear. He is so self-aware. He is so focused. There is this attractive intensity 
and focus in the life of Jesus with why he was sent. Implications abound. One of which is a reinforcement that Jesus's life, the coming of Jesus, the advent of God, which is what we celebrate in a few weeks, the advent of God Almighty entering into the human experience, taking on our humanity, Jesus Christ. The advent of God was not an accident. It was not a product of random chance. It is the culmination of rich design and Jesus's life embodies and reflects with that. He is bursting with it. And from 12, we see it. Man, I got to be about my father's business. At 30, we see it. Follow me. At 33, we see it. Not my will, but your will be done. Give me the cross for their sake. I'll call it joy. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What need do I have with the, the, the whole and the, the healed? We're going after the lost sheep of Israel, the broken, to bind their wounds up and heal them. Some man came to seek and to save the law. The clarity, the audacious clarity of Jesus does it for me. Undeterred. One instance in his life, they're loving his preaching. And they're like, let's take this man and make him king. He's like, it's not my time yet. Plus, you don't really know what I'm here for. You just like my words. Undeterred. Oh, if I could just have that level of clarity. All of us could have that level of self-awareness, though, to press into who we really are and not who we like to be or who we paint ourselves to be in the public eye. God, have mercy on my soul. Much more he's reinforcing to move on to what I believe he is setting up and then close with the grid. I like movies a lot. Um, like a lot, a lot, a lot. But I don't watch the same movie the same way, and neither do you. First, it's rare that I watch a movie in a theater twice. I could count on one hand the movies I've done that with. Moana, that movie was so fire. Yo. And I didn't just watch it with my kids. I took some adults too. It was a great experience. Will was there multiple times with us. Glory be. Black Panther. Hey, get busy. Saw Black Panther uh, two days ago. Probably going to see it in the theater again because the people who were behind us were distracting. It was the first time we took our family to the theater in a while. I was like, this is too much, guys. Like, in Jesus' name, God bless. Plus, the movie was like, Phew. I don't give spoil. I almost gave a spoil. Yeah, amen. But again, even if I watch it in the theater, I don't watch it the same way because I know what's coming, right? That's all of us. So we interpret the beginning based on our past experience, the story that we've see, seen unfolded. If you read through Luke, and if you haven't yet, I'm just going to invite you to do it. Just read through Luke. And if you're courageous, read through Luke and Acts in one sitting. Just do it. 
And what you will see are themes that are bursting from the pages of this story that show up everywhere. They create an interpretive lens for how you experience the story that's being told. I can't unsee what is here. What Luke aims for us to see, it is a key theme. It shows up here. It is going to show up in a few chapters when I preach it. It is going to show up in the rest of Luke's gospel. It is going to show up in Acts. What he means for us to see is something powerful about Jesus, that Jesus truly, he is the champion that we have been longing for. This is the story that he's painting thus for. It's one of waiting and waiting and waiting and angst and waiting. God, are you still there? God, do you still hear me? Are you ignoring me? What's going on? And then out of nowhere, Jesus shows up and we're like, I've been waiting for you this whole time. Part of me knew it. Part of me had no clue. You made it known. So he is the champion that we've been longing for. He aims for us to see that. But there's another portion that he aims us for us to see, that Jesus isn't merely the champion that we've been longing for. He is the model that we look to for life. What Luke is painting throughout his writings is that Jesus is doing everything that he's doing as one empowered by the Spirit of God. This is why the baptism of Jesus is powerful. That's coming. So I don't want to preach it. But he is showing us that Jesus is living a human life empowered by God. It is not to put his deity on the shelf. It is to highlight an aspect of the character of Jesus Christ that he means for us to pattern our lives after which means that we don't just marvel at him, but we model our lives after him. Jesus moves this from theory and concept with some dangerous words. Follow me. Follow me. An invitation into relationship. Come be with me. But then he put something on the back of those words, and I will make you fishers of men. So I'm inviting you into a relationship, and I'm challenging you to change. You will be something because of your presence with me. He's a model. Something that is dangerous, and it's on all of our doorsteps, is caricature Christianity. So... I don't really like rides at roller coasters. I know I mentioned Slinky Dog Dash, but that's because I'm an amazing father. And so my kids wanted to go on one. So I was like, I'm going to do it. And I held my teeth. He goes, I don't want to do this. But sometimes I'm not an amazing father. So when we go to like the fair, like I don't ride none of that. I'm like, this is dangerous. Like this looks like it's going to fall apart. Like why would you get on that in Jesus name? And but then they give me the googly eyes like, dad, please. And I'm like, oh, don't die. You know what I'm saying? But, I'll, but I'm going to support you in prayer, and I just put up my holy hands. But I will not support you in presence. But at the fair, it's not just those terrible rides. There's these people that are like, you know, they're, they're looking at you. They're like, do you want to get your portrait drawn for like $40? Why would I spend money? So Yes. Like, why would I do that? I'm a pastor. Pastor salary. Right? Like, no. 
But you know the caricature is right. Like you, you take some you, like aspects of a person and then you kind of enlarge them. Because what happens? The reason you create a caricature is because you're using somebody as a frame of reference, right? And so it's like I'm looking at you, but then I'm kind of doing my own thing. Like that's what we do with Jesus. It's like I kind of look at you, mm, kind of like that bit, like that bit. Let me just do my own thing. Luke is saying, no, Jesus is not merely a frame of reference for how you live your human life as a Christian. He is saying, no, 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 he is the model. So you step into him. You don't look at him and then look away and go do your own thing. You step into him and you're like, oh, like teach me, shape me, mold me. Does that make sense? That is what he's after and we have to see it. Or we create some version of Christianity that really is a reflection of our hobby horses or our frustrations. And it doesn't lead people to life everlasting. It actually leads them away. Circa 2016, circa 2021, American Christianity, okay? And every culture everywhere is expressing this reality, but I'm just talking about us because this is our context. Not a frame of reference. I think kind of just, but to step in to the fullness of who God is. Let me close with the grid. We don't just marvel, we model. Here's the grid. Perspective. All the spiritual formation guys use this language. But it's be with Jesus and become like Jesus. The perspective of this passage that I just want to lay in front of us, that it's God's eyes. Remember, perspective to say, God, like, how can I take your eyes and make them my own? Like, God's eyes is, yo, be with Jesus. Be with him. And then become like him. The sequence matters. Just be with him, man. Thus the practice to schedule and seek out silence and solitude. To actually do it. To, to, to build it into your daily rhythm. First 15, God, it's yours. I am tithing the first 15 of my day, believing that you will order my heart and that you would order my life. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to put my phone not next to me, but I'm going to put my phone over there. Or I'm going to have a place where I go where it's just me, man. It's me and God. Or we could practice it together in terms of solitude, but I, or silence. Anyway. That's the practice. Schedule and seek it out this week. When it become a discipline forever. And then a picture for the other side. Who are we? Who are we if this perspective is ours? Who are we if these practices are ours? We are people who live a more unhurried and focused life. Father, time is not your enemy, Christian. Young Christian, you are not missing out by following Jesus. Old Christian, the better days are actually in front of you. Eternity with God, no pain. Be unhurried. It's not like we have to seize time that we lost as if we could regain it. Or squeeze 10 years out of 10 minutes as if we have that power but to be fully present, unhurried, unbothered, 
unencumbered and attentive is the task of humanity, and it is a beast. It is a beast for us more than any other generation that has come before us. And I don't say that from a posture of chronological arrogance. I'm just looking at reality. And it is a beast for us in Miami. Our city is so loud. It's so loud. From the clothes and the colors, and I like the colors. From what grabs our attention, from the way we medicate to slow down. Miami smells like weed everywhere you go. From Brickle to the beach, been on my bike. So I smell it. I'm like, did I just bike the Rickenbacker Causeway high? How did that happen? (laughs) Trying to slow down and detach, and there's just a better way. We feel it differently in our city. But to slow down, to actually do these practices, to step into and see what Jesus has embodied, we will be unhurried and focused. I'll close with another Mark Comer quote. He says this, the solution to an overbusy life isn't more time. It's to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. He is right. Pray with me. Father, um, would that perspective be ours? To be with Jesus and become...